and even at home, daydreaming could sometimes get him into trouble. One Christmas, Peter's father, Thomas Fortune, was hanging the decorations in the living room. It was a job he hated. It always put him in a bad mood. He was wanting to tape some streamers high in one corner. Now in that corner was an armchair, and sitting in that armchair, doing nothing in particular, was Peter. Don't move, feet, said Mr. Fortune. I'm going to stand on the back of your chair to reach up here. That's fine, Peter said. You go ahead. Up onto the chair went Thomas Fortune, and away in his thoughts went Peter. He looked like he was doing nothing, but in fact he was very busy. He was inventing an exciting way of coming down a mountain quickly, using a coat hanger and a length of wire stretched tight between the pine trees. He went on thinking about this problem while his father stood on the back of his chair, straining and gasping as he reached up to the ceiling. How, Peter wondered, would you go on sliding down without slamming into the trees that were holding up the wire? Perhaps it was the mountain air that made Peter remember he was hungry. In the kitchen was an unopened box of chocolate cookies. It was a pity to go on neglecting them. Just as he stood up, there was a terrible crash behind him. He turned just in time to see his father fall headfirst into the gap between the chair and the corner. Then Thomas Fortune reappeared, headfirst again, looking ready to chop Peter into tiny bits. On the other side of the room, Peter's mother clamped her hand across her mouth to hide her laughter. Oh, sorry, Dad, Peter said. I forgot you were there. Not long after his tenth birthday, Peter was entrusted with the mission of taking his seven-year-old sister Kate to school. Peter and Kate went to the same school. It was a fifteen-minute walk or a short bus ride away. Usually, they walked there with their father, who dropped them off on his way to work. But now the children were thought old enough to make it to school by themselves on the bus, and Peter was in charge. It was only two stops down the road. But the way his parents kept going on about it, you might have thought Peter was taking Kate to the North Pole. He was given instructions the night before. When he woke up, he had to listen to them over again. Then his parents repeated them all through breakfast. As the children were on their way out the door, their mother Viola Fortune ran through the rules one last time. Everyone must think I'm stupid, Peter thought. Perhaps I am. He was to keep hold of Kate's hand at all times. They were to sit close to the front, with Kate nearest the window. They were not to get into conversations with lunatics. Peter was to tell the bus driver the name of his stop in a loud voice, without forgetting to say please. He was to keep his eyes on the route. Peter repeated all this back to his mother, and set off for the bus stop with his sister. They held hands all the way. Actually. He didn't mind this because the truth was he really liked Kate. He simply hoped that none of his friends would see him holding a girl's hand. The bus came. They got on and sat close to the front. It was ridiculous sitting there holding hands, and there were some boys from school there, so they let go of each other. Peter was feeling proud of himself. He could take care of his sister anywhere. She could count on him. 
If they were alone together on a mountain pass and came face to face with a pack of hungry wolves, he would know exactly what to do. Taking care not to make any sudden movement, he would move away with Kate until they had their backs to a large rock. That way the wolves would not be able to surround them. Then he takes from his pocket two important things he is remembered to bring with him, his hunting knife and a box of matches. He takes the knife from its sheath and sets it down on the grass, ready in case the wolves attack. They're coming closer now. They're so hungry, they're drooling and growling and baying. Kate is crying, but he cannot comfort her. He knows he has to concentrate on his plan. Right at their feet are some dry leaves and twigs. Quickly and skillfully, Peter gathers them into a small pile. The wolves are edging closer. He has to get this right. There's only one match left in the box. They can smell the wolves' breath, a terrible rotten meat stench. He bends down, cups his hand, and lights the match. There's a gust of wind. The flame flickers, but Peter holds it close to the pile, and then first one leaf, then another, then the end of a twig catch fire, and soon the little pile is blazing. He piles on more leaves and twigs and larger sticks. Kate is getting the idea and helping him. The wolves are backing off. Wild animals are terrified of fire. The flames are leaping higher, and the wind is carrying the smoke right into their slobbering jaws. Now Peter takes hold of the hunting knife, and... Ridiculous. It was daydreams like this could make him miss his stop if he wasn't careful. The bus had come to a halt. The kids from his school were already getting off. Peter leaped to his feet and just managed to jump to the pavement as the bus was starting off again. It was more than fifty yards down the road when he realized he had forgotten something. Was it his backpack? No. It was his sister. He had saved her from the wolves and left her sitting there. For a moment he couldn't move. He stood watching the bus pull away up the road. Come back, he murmured. Come back. One of the boys from his school came over and thumped him on the back. Hey, what's up? Seen a ghost? Peter's voice seemed to come from far away. Oh, nothing. Nothing. I, I left something on the bus. And then he started to run. The bus was already a quarter of a mile away and beginning to slow down for its next stop. Peter sprinted. He was going so fast that if he spread his arms far apart he would probably have been able to take off. Then he could skim along the top of the trees and... But no, he wasn't going to start daydreaming again. He was going to get his sister back. Even now she would be screaming in terror. Some passengers had got off, and now the bus was moving away again. He was closer than before, and the traffic was heavy. The bus was crawling behind a truck... If he could just keep running and forget the terrible pain in his legs and chest, he would catch up. When he drew level with the bus stop, the bus was no more than a hundred yards away. Faster, faster, he said to himself. There was a kid standing by the bus shelter who called out to Peter as he passed. Hey, Peter, Peter! Peter didn't have the strength to turn his head. Can't stop, he panted and ran on. Peter, stop! It's me, Kate! Clutching at his chest... Peter collapsed on the grass at his sister's feet. Look out for that dog, Ness, she said calmly, as she watched her brother fighting for his breath. Come on now, we'd better walk back or else we're going to be late. You'd better hold my hand if you're going to stay out of trouble.
So they walked to school together, and Kate very decently promised, in return for Peter's Saturday allowance, to say nothing about what had happened when they got home. The trouble with being a daydreamer who doesn't say much is that the teachers at school, especially the ones who don't know you very well, are likely to think you're stupid, or if not stupid, then dull. No one can see the amazing things that are going on inside your head. A teacher who saw Peter staring out the window or at a blank sheet of paper on his desk might think that he was bored or stuck for an answer, but the truth was quite different. For example, one morning the children in Peter's class were given a math test. They had to add up some very large numbers, and they had twenty minutes. Almost as soon as he had started on the first sum, which involved adding 3,500,295 to another number almost as large, Peter found himself thinking about the largest number in the world. He had read the week before about a number with the wonderful name of Gugol. A Gugol was ten multiplied by ten a hundred times. Ten with a hundred zeros on the end. And there was an even better word, a real beauty. Google Plex. A Google Plex was ten multiplied by ten a Google number of times. What a number! Peter let his mind wander off into the fantastic size of it. The zeros trailed into space like bubbles. His father had told him that astronomers had worked out that the total number of atoms in all the millions of stars they could see through their giant telescopes was ten with ninety-eight zeros on the end. All the atoms in the world did not even add up to one single Google, and a Google was the tiniest little scrap of a thing.